Grace to you in peace and welcome. You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church in beautiful Roanoke, Virginia. My name is Ben Brannan, Associate Pastor for Youth and Young Adults. And each week it is our hope that from the pulpit, God will twist and mold our words to land upon the listener's ears in a meaningful way that will inspire faith, encourage hope, and cultivate love in action. Thanks for tuning in. We're so glad you're here with us. Please subscribe and share, and I pray that through our words, you may grow closer to God. Let us pray. Holy God, as your word is read, proclaimed, and enacted in sacrament, May something of your heavenly kingdom be present and experienced, that we may be nurtured by your love and cradled in your grace. Amen. Our gospel reading for today comes from Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. It's a challenging passage, but I ask that you be open open to what is happening in this passage, what is happening in you as we read it, and what God's word is saying to us this day. Someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. On November 27th, 1895, Alfred Nobel signed his last will and testament at Paris's Swedish-Norwegian Club. History.com wrote an article about the origins of the infamous awards that bear his name. The 62-year-old industrialist had previously contemplated using some of his personal fortune to support the work of scientists and inventors. But the document Nobel produced described a project far more ambitious than anyone could have ever imagined. In fewer than a thousand handwritten words, Nobel outlined a plan to devote the vast majority of his estate, worth about $265 million today, to a series of prizes for those who, quote, 
during the preceding year shall have conferred the greatest benefit on humankind. In that document, he listed five awards in his will. A sixth award for economics was later added in 1968. Three awards were for the greatest discoveries or inventions in the fields of physics, chemistry, and medicine. A fourth was devoted to the author of the, quote, most outstanding work of literature. And the fifth was designated for the person who shall have done the most or the best work for peace. While these awards would eventually grow famous across the globe, there was no denying that Alfred Nobel was an unlikely source for a peace prize. One historian notes that Nobel's family name was associated not with the arts of peace, but with the arts of war. Alfred Nobel owned an armaments manufacturer, developed new types of explosives utilizing the unstable power of nitroglycerin, and later invented dynamite. Certainly an unlikely source for a peace prize. So why did the dynamite king hand over his fortune to peace and prosperity? Well, in 1888, Alfred Nobel opened his newspaper and read his own obituary, entitled, The Merchant of Death is Dead. You see, Alfred's brother Ludwig had died in France from a heart attack, and thanks to some poor reporting, at least one French newspaper believed that it was Alfred who had died. So it proceeded to write a scathing obituary that branded Alfred as the Merchant of Death who had built a fortune by developing new ways to kill. Alfred would live eight more years after the obituary was written. Imagine reading your obituary. What do you believe will be the words written about how you lived your life? I remember an exercise in my University 101 course my first year in college where we had to write our own obituary. I can't remember exactly what I wrote, but I do remember the challenge and the vulnerability and self-reflection that went into it, but I cannot imagine the intrusive uneasiness felt reading someone else's words about you. And imagine reading your own obituary and learning that you would be remembered in such a negative way. Would it make you change your ways? Well, it did for Alfred Nobel. According to biographer Ken Font, Nobel, quote, became so obsessed with his posthumous reputation that he rewrote his last will bequeathing most of his fortune to a cause upon which no future obituary writer would be able to cast aspirations. I wonder if Jesus' parable functions a bit like Nobel's obituary for us. While teaching his disciples, Jesus is confronted by a question regarding inheritance. Fighting over inheritance is a common problem in all societies and cultures, and if an estate plan is not properly laid out, it often leads to stress and strain for the surviving family. The man 
comes from the crowd to ask Jesus to intervene with his brother to give him his share of the inheritance. It was commonplace in first century Palestine for Jews to ask rabbis for legal ruling. So in asking Jesus to be the mediator in the family affair, the man must have thought Jesus as a respected rabbi, one who had influence over people, and one who he thought could have convinced his brother to give him his share of the inheritance. Jesus refuses, however. He refuses to enter into the family squabble and instead uses the situation to further his teaching about the seduction of wealth. Jesus issues a warning about greed and supports his teaching with the parable of what is titled the rich fool. But what is wrong with the brother's request in the first place? What is the issue with wanting your share of the family inheritance? And in response to the parable, what is so foolish about saving for the future? Why is building a bigger barn a bad thing when there is so much uncertainty about tomorrow? Well, these questions often sit front and center as the text comes through the lectionary. And as preachers decide whether to preach it or not, or sometimes shy away from the punch that is thrown in the face of our own consumerism. The difficulty, or should I say the challenge, here is that Jesus exposes our human greed and anxiety about money and then employs the parable to singe away any illusion that the godly life is synonymous with the American ideal of prosperity, wealth, and success. In our culture, we have idolized money as blessing, as fortune, as the means for happiness, and as security that we gain for ourselves. Yet conversations about money have seemingly become taboo in the very same culture. We are more comfortable talking about sex than about money. Maybe it's because money is always about more than money. Edwin Freeman and Peter Stanky in their work on family systems help illustrate that money matters often reveal the true heart of any organization, churches included, as well of our own individual households. Our spending, our saving, our benevolences, if any, and our general attitude toward material wealth are all invested with emotions and memories. And money matters are not simple matters. This is why in every premarital counseling session, I always ask the couple to tell me what messages about money they received from their family growing up. And I also ask, how would you go about making decisions about money once you are married? And so this is where I want to focus our attention for today. The parable does confront our material greed and our lack of trust in providential care of God's abundance, as well as our constant need of more. But what is striking about this parable, as one commentator points out, is the fact that the man makes his decision all by himself. The man who certainly does not work 
the land has a conversation with himself. And after the renovation plan is decided, he permits his soul to bask in his abundance, to sit back, drink up, and be merry. The man doesn't realize, though, that his time on earth has come to an end. This will be his last night to gaze at his wealth before his stored-up treasures will be left sitting in those newly constructed bigger barns, likely to then be divided and dispersed. Sitting on more than enough, the man talks with himself. He doesn't talk with anyone else about how to handle his abundance. He didn't call on his family to ask what he should do. In fact, no family is mentioned at all in the parable. He didn't reach out to friends for advice. He doesn't stop and pray and seek guidance from God. The relentless use of the first person pronouns I and mine used 11 times in only three verses reveal the egocentric nature of the man. And as another commentator puts it, the farmer has fallen prey to worshiping the most popular of gods the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. The man's foolishness comes in his selfishness. There is no thought about giving some of his abundance away to those in need, no expression of gratitude for his good fortune, no recognition of God at all. He never once considers allowing his fields to be gleaned, offering those without land to come behind and gather what they may need. He never once considers offering a bonus to the farmers who actually work his land. But only one option came to mind in his self-to-self conversation. Confronted with the happy problem of a bumper crop with no thought of God or neighbor or alien or widow or orphan or any other whose lives are at risk due to their lack of access, he concludes that the answer is to tear down his barns stuffed to the brim to build even bigger barns for his crops and other possessions. I wonder what this tells us about dealing with our own abundance. Who is at the table when decisions need to be made about how we spend, about how we invest, about how we give and save? As stewardship seasons come and go, please hang with me. As stewardship seasons come and go each year and churches develop and approve budgets, Who is at the table? Is all of our conversation internal? Or do we seek guidance from those outside of our community? Do we talk only with ourselves or do we seek advice from those perhaps on the margins of society? Do we seek God's will for our church abundance? Do we ask the outsiders, the neighbors, the community leaders here to to hear what they might suggest. What about in your own household? In your own business or organization, who is at the table? And who is not at the table and needs to be? 
As long as we only talk with ourselves, what we do with money will reflect our conveniences and our preferences. But, on another note, I will say, as the staff liaison to the Service and Outreach Committee, we are doing a pretty good job. We reach out to see where the need may be in our community. We seek updates and guidance from our mission partners and even those we do not support in our budget to gain understanding about how our money decisions may affect those we serve, those we love, and those with whom we share life with, known and unknown. And on August 28th, we will celebrate the Mission Build campaign and the $1.7 million that we have raised for mission alone. But with all the excess at the center of the man's life, he plunged into the trap of idolatry, an idolatry that is often idolized in our culture. And we are constantly confronted by the message that life indeed consists in the abundance of possessions and that you must have more to be more. We are encouraged to supersize and to maximize. You need to upgrade in order to be upscale. A trap that is easy to fall into. The question to ask is this. Are our desires and standards for what is enough driven by a determination to store up treasures for our own pleasure and use, thinking only of ourselves, or by our understanding of God's blessings and our covenant promise and purpose to bless others? And as we continue to make decisions about money in our nation, in our city, in our church, in our own families, who do we need to invite to be part of the conversation that isn't currently heard? Whose voice should be valued that is left sitting off to the side? To the man in the parable, a bigger barn was the answer. But that very night, his life was being demanded of him. His obituary might have been entitled, Barn man dies a bear man. Or he could have changed his ways, much like Alfred Nobel did to use his abundance to build a better barn, one that is open and charitable, offering his abundance to those in want and need. Perhaps then his obituary read, rich man turned rich toward God. Friends, instead of banking on more barns and larger barns, God invites us all rich and poor into the eternal economy of grace and mercy. There, we hear the truth that you are more than enough, that you are enough. Because what would it profit you to gain the world, yet lose your soul? Amen. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.